Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Today's episode of Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by T-Mobile. This season, T-Mobile customers can get a free season-long subscription to MLB.tv Premium. Sign up by April 10th at T-Mobile.com slash MLB. Sign up for MLB.tv while on T-Mobile's network. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 4th, 2016. On today's show, we'll be joined by Women's World Cup winning goalkeeper Brianna Scurry, who will speak with us about the U.S. women's national soccer team's push for equal pay. We'll also be joined by Bruce Schoenfeld to discuss his piece in the New York Times Magazine on the venture capitalist who took over the Golden State Warriors, fellows who believe their management style has contributed to the team's success. Finally, we're going to celebrate baseball's opening day by talking about a mysterious rise in home runs and what might explain it. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. And with us in New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. And Mike has just discovered the existence of a 120-sided die, so he's very excited. Yeah. My inner dungeon master has just gotten tweaked. I'm more excited about the 120-sided die than the NCAA championship game. And maybe it's because I'm on the ESPN homepage. And here are the two top stories about the game. Why North Carolina and Villanova need this title more than ever. I reject the premise. What's the title you don't need? What's the state where it's like, nah, nah, they could skip this one. Why Why would Villanova need the title? 
North Carolina, I guess, will take away the stench of all that tutoring scandal. But then the second story is a video link. Greeny, Mike Green, that means, colon, playing basketball. Like Greenberg. Greenberg. Playing basketball in a stadium is, quote, an absolute travesty, which is a fine enough quasi-sentence, except it says the link is two minutes, 20 seconds long. What, what more do you need? What two minutes, 18 seconds more do you need to know than that playing basketball in a stadium is an absolute travesty? Because, you know, travesty in and of itself is a word, not absolute enough. An absolute well, you travesty. It, you have to say it 14 times. Yeah. So that takes about... Two minutes and twenty. It is seconds. the Holocaust. It's a travesty. Of it's a travesty, Mike. I gotta tell you, a travesty. Travesty. I listened to the whole Mike and the Mad Dog six blocks of. Oh God, it was really good. It was the live show. I got invited to it. I couldn't go, but it was all simulcast, and I listened to it all. I was very happy about the uh, about Villanova's blowout in the semifinal because it erased the stench associated with my alma mater, Penn. For the greatest defeat in a Final Four, Penn had lost to Michigan State Magic Johnson 101 to 67 in yeah. 1979. That's why they did it. They did it for their fellow uh, Palestra. Big Five. In. Yeah. Yes. Well, not anymore, Villanova, but yeah, Big Five. Right. You guys said that you need to say absolute travesty 14 times. I think that's the second stench erasure of the show already. We've only been going for a couple of minutes. How many stenches are we going to erase? Let's roll that 120 sided die, see, uh, see which stench will be erased next. Well, I think this shows that. You know, having us talk about you on the show, having a topic, you can't take it for granted. It's a privilege, not a right. Mm -hmm. Villanova, if you want us to talk about you, just don't win by as many points. It was, a, it was not an interesting blowout. They were just too good. I don't know if Villanova needs the championship. They needed to be talked about on this program. Mm -hmm. They've achieved that barely. And now barely. we shall erase the stench. So we have a live show in D.C. where we may or may not talk about Villanova, but we do know who our guest is going to be our special guest. It is going to be a champion, a champion of the Women's World Cup, a native of Northern Virginia. She plays for the Washington Spirit. She plays on the indomitable back line of the U.S. Women's National Team, the underpaid yet indomitable back line. It's Allie Krieger. I'm very excited about Allie Krieger being our special guest. So to get tickets, you go to slate.com slash live. It's on Monday night, April 25th, it's at the Woolly Mammoth Theater in downtown D.C. It's a great venue. We'll have other topics, Villanova or non-Villanova related. Mike, you'll buy your 120-sided die and bring it as a prop. That'll be good. <laughs> Allie Krieger, I'm sure, is a 12th-level druid. Yeah, she was. So anyway, Culture Gab Fest live in Manhattan, Political Gab Fest in Atlanta coming up in April. Uh, for more information on those shows, and more, visit slate.com slash live. There's also a Great Books Academy coming up on Slate Plus, uh, which is on April 13th, I believe. A lot of exciting things happening in the Slate podcast universe. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we're going to talk about Matt Harvey. We're not going to talk about Matt Harvey's performance in Sunday night's opening game. We're going to talk win? about Matt Harvey's... Did he lose? Did he, he lost. Win? He lost? We're going to talk about Matt Harvey's problems with urination. Urination. What? You've heard of Red Sox Nation? You've heard of <laughs> Royals Nation? It's the best one. <laughs> Urination. We're going to talk about the New York Post's, the absolute joy and pleasure that they took in coming up with puns for uh, Matt Harvey's urination problems. We will reveal what those puns were 
and perhaps uh, give you some of our own in our bonus segment. To hear that and others like it on Hang Up and Listen, are there could there really be others like it? <laughs> this, is, I think, is a unique bonus segment. But to hear other bonus segments on other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangupplus. Five women from the U.S. national soccer team, Carly Lloyd, Hope Solo, Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino, and Becky Sauerbrunn, filed a complaint last week with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission saying the U.S. Soccer Federation should pay them the same amount as their male counterparts. Um, in the words of ESPN, the filing citing figures from the U.S. Soccer Federation's 2015 financial report says that despite the women's team generating nearly $20 million more revenue last year than the U.S. men's team, the women are paid almost four times less. I think that we've proven our worth over the years, Carly Lloyd said in an interview, just coming off of a World Cup win. The pay disparity between the men and women is just too large. Joining us now by phone is Brianna Scurry, who had 173 caps for the U.S. women's national team between 1994 and 2008. She won an Olympic gold medal in 1996 and the Women's World Cup in 1999. She made the stop in the penalty shootout that allowed the U.S. to beat China. Brianna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And I know I didn't congratulate you. It's 17 years too late, but awesome job stopping that penalty kick. That was great. <laughs> I appreciate that. Better late than never. Um, the, the accolades from that PK never get old, so I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> All right. And before we get into the particulars of this lawsuit, which we will do in detail, um, you were on the team for a really long time. And can you just tell us what the pay was like, you know, what the conditions were that you got, you know, for traveling and everything compared to the men's team? And did you feel like you weren't really getting a fair shake what you deserved? Yes. Um, the quote that Carly said was very interesting, you know, uh, in her interview with GMA, she said the generation before us fought and we're continuing that fight. And that is very true. Um, you know, the 99 World Cup team, teams prior to that, we, we had to fight the Federation uh, over things like equal uh, massage therapists, comparable hotel accommodations, travel, money, all of that. I mean, everything was on the table. The disparity back then was incredibly large and we had to literally fight to even get more per diem than the men had, and and it's continuing today. And what saddens me about this whole thing is that it seems to be, even though the dollar numbers are higher, the discrepancies uh, are very similar today as they were 20 years ago. To be clear, back then there was no professional league. The men's league was only a few years old when you uh, when you guys won the World Cup in 1999. Uh, the disparities had to be a lot larger. How were you and the other women on those teams? sort of surviving on a day-to-day, -day, week week-to-week basis? Well, to be completely honest with you, uh, many of us weren't. Um, I was actually one of the fortunate ones that came into the national team in the mid-'90s when money finally did start to flow to the national teams. Um, back then, in 1994 was my first year, 95 was the first year I got paid. That's also when Nike came on board as a huge sponsor for U.S. Soccer Federation, and there were at that time, the first signs of any real dollars coming in to players for, for the women's side. Before that, there weren't much any of any money at all. I mean, if you ask some of the 91ers who won the 91 World Cup, they were surviving literally on per diem only and, and not much else. And so 
it was a very difficult um, thing to do to be able to play professionally, give all that time, you know, months and months and years of training and not be able to actually pay your bills at all. And the per diem, by the way, is still unequal, which seems to me the pettiest of all, right? 75 bucks for the men and 60 bucks. Although, you know, a man steak, now that's a real steak, a woman steak. What are you guys have salad, right? right? Man, we eat more, Mike. <laughs> apparently you do, and apparently yeah. taxis uh, and movie tickets cost more as well, things like that. Yeah, so the, the interesting thing about um, all the numbers that were shown with the um, EEOC complaint is is things like that, things like per diem and things like travel, you know, coach class versus business class, higher star rated hotels versus lower star rated hotels. I mean, these are kinds of things that aren't explainable on revenue. These are things that do, do raise an eyebrow with regards to, to fairness and the lack thereof. And so things like that, I mean, if you a soccer, in my opinion, that's the last thing you should be having on there. There's a per diem discrepancy. <laughs> that's, that's it. You can you can put a couple more bucks in in the per diem kitty, and it wouldn't hurt you. Now, I've heard all the arguments, and it seems that you know just when you stack up the bounty that men get for winning a friendly, so much more than what the women get for winning a friendly for making a World Cup team. The men get more, even of course the women did a lot better in their World Cup. But there does seem to be two arguments that the U.S. Soccer Federation perhaps on it, has on its side. One is that the comparison of how much revenue was made, yes, the revenue in 2016, the women made more, and in 2017, it's projected. But they're saying, look at a longer time period, not going back to infinity, but if you incorporate both teams' uh, World Cup tenures, last four years, men actually have been making more than the women. So what are your thoughts on that? And then I'll tell you the second one. Okay, so the revenue argument has always been the main pushback that U.S. soccer's had. This is the exact same argument they made with us when I played. Mm-hmm. And here's my response to that. Revenue is generated on one thing for the most part when it comes to a market economy, which is what Sunil Gulati uh, referenced. And that is dollars in, in terms of development, marketing, and what have you. If U.S. soccer could show everyone that a dollar they put towards the men they match that dollar towards the women's game, then I'm pretty certain that the revenue numbers would be a lot closer. You have to look at the whole cycle with regards to how you prime the pump based on what comes out of the pump. If you're anemic in what you prime the pump with, which is marketing dollars, development dollars in the front of the cycle, and expect to get equal on the back end of the cycle in revenues, you're mistaken. Are you putting the same amount in of time, marketing dollars, development dollars, development time into the women's game as you are with the men? If the answer is no, then how can you truly expect revenue to be equal? That's a good argument, I think. And the second thing that I would argue or what the U.S. Soccer Federation has argued is, look, this is a contract. We negotiate these contracts. That's the amount we offered X. They countered and then we settled. Now, there's some question about whether you have a union and if there is a memorandum, but this is what you agree to. And one of the reasons is we're not just negotiating based on what percent of the pie to give you. When we pay the men, we're hiring them away from much higher paying jobs on club 
club teams, so we have to incentivize them more. In fact, we'd probably rather pay the men less if we could get away with it, but we can't just because even if the U.S. soccer market for men or even if the revenue generated by the U.S. national men's team isn't what it is, the women's team, we're competing against extremely, in some cases, really, really rich European clubs. So you got to put a lot of money on the table to get them to play friendlies for us. What about that? Um, that is a great argument as well, but once again, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that now we have to put more dollars into the men's pocket because we have to pull them away from European high-generating teams. That wasn't the case 20 years ago. The majority of the men's players weren't playing anywhere near high-generating revenue teams in Europe. Maybe the goalkeepers were for the USA men. The goalkeepers were playing in, in Europe, but the rest of the players scantily were. And so you can't use the same argument 20 years later that you were using 20 years before when that actually didn't exist, for one. One other thing about fairness with the men and women, if you look at the numbers based on their marketing, the budget numbers, where is the money for the men and where is the money for the women? When it comes to regards to, for example, FIFA and the Women's World Cup, the Men's World Cup, U.S. soccer front loads the men's play and back loads the women's play. So, for example, by that I mean the men get dollars for points in the round-robin play. The women don't see dollars for the World Cup tournament until they get to a semifinal. And I'd like... You're talking about bonuses for the players. Yes. I'd like someone to explain that. So if you say, well, we have to pay them more to get them away... Mm -hmm. Well, you're paying them more to get them away, but you're paying them based on a lack of performance as opposed to better performance. All these different arguments don't make sense to me. What do you think about having the argument, at least part of the argument, be about the women's team being so successful recently? Because I wonder if that is really helping the cause. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but if it's just a question of fairness and a question of, you know, what the former chief of the EEOC said is what the plaintiffs need to prove in an equal pay case is that something that they appear to have already done. There are males and females working in substantially equal jobs with the same employer, yet they're receiving different compensation. So is the argument, well, the women's team is so great and everybody wants to see them and they did so well in the Women's World Cup. Is that really the point here or is it just that these women are doing the same job as the men? The issue is, in my mind, is the U.S. Soccer Federation is in charge of growing the sport of soccer for everyone in this country, not just for the men, but also for the women. The U.S. Soccer Federation has gotten high notoriety in this country for the sport of soccer on the backs of the women's team for over 20 years. Success has come and visibility has come and marketing dollars and sponsorship dollars and TV dollars has come to soccer in general a lot because of the success of the women's national team. Sponsors want a piece of a winner when it comes to who they sponsor and whether they want to come to sponsor the U.S. Soccer Federation or they want to go sponsor a completely different league and a completely different sport. A lot of that rides on the success of the women's team. I think you're absolutely right there. I mean, U.S. soccer's mission is, quote, to make soccer in all its forms a preeminent sport in the United States and to continue the development of soccer at all recreational and competitive levels. It doesn't say anything there about men versus women. And I would propose 
that given that U.S. soccer is this single business devoted to promoting and developing soccer in the United States, I would ask, why bother with a gender distinction here anyway? Why not lump all the revenue together and distribute it evenly among these players? Some years the men will out-earn the women on the national team level. Some years the women will out-earn the men. If the men happen to be slightly revenue larger, net revenue larger, so what? The women arguably are media net way larger. And what's the value of their consistent public profile which arguably exceeds that of the men. Well, can I restate my argument from before? Like, what if the results of the men in the World Cup and the women in the World Cup were reversed? Would you say, I mean, Stefan, would you say that the equal pay case would be weaker for the women then? That's my question is like, why should that matter? I think, I think, it, I think it would be weaker because that's how we would want to perceive it. But if the mission of the U.S. soccer is to lift up soccer for everybody in the United States, it should be equally interested in creating both players and consumers of both genders. And that means supporting the elite players of both genders at a similar or equal level. Right, because the U.S. Soccer Federation bundles the two teams together with regards to when they're selling the commercial rights for TV sponsorship and licensing. So once you have an argument of why there's a disparity, that's when they separate their argument is a separation of revenue. How I see it as is that the fact that the women have been so incredibly successful I think makes the disparity that much more alarming between the two. I mean, if they were both mediocre or if they were both incredibly successful, the disparity would be astronomical on the other hand. But the fact that it is really, really bad as it is when the women have won four Olympic gold medals and three World Cup championships, that in helps the argument with the EEOC filing. I agree. I think it would be fantastic. It should be closer to even whether the men's team does better or the women's team does better. It should be closer to even because they're trying to build the game for all in the sport. Can I just, can I just point out that two members of the women's national team, Morgan Bryan and Megan Klingenberg, prior to last year's World Cup, were living at the home of Jeff Van Gundy <laughs> to save money while they were playing he for their club a, team. He probably has a nice house. Probably does have a nice house. We've got a <laughs> Ping pong table, pool table. Mike, uh, Mike, what do you got? So I was listening to an old interview uh, that Faye Vincent did, and he was talking about Marvin Miller and Bowie Kuhn, and he pointed out that Marvin Miller once said to him that once you turn an economic issue into a moral issue, you always win. And I think that's what the women's soccer team has done. But my question is about that of a moral issue. For you, just, this is just a moral cause. Um, you're not getting any money from this, right, Brianna? Absolutely not. No, I I am in this. I am speaking out on this because it's the right thing to do, and I completely agree with um, equal pay for equal play, and and also because I went through this. And part of the legacy that we had, we as in the, play, the teams I played on, was not only to help express ourselves on the pitch and inspire growth of the game and young girls and boys in our play but also to leave a legacy off the pitch, which is to show that women's sports and women athletes can also do this as a living. And in order to get that to be to that point, you have to, unfortunately, consistently over decades, fight 
the U.S. Soccer Federation to get that to be more even and more fair. And the reason that Klingenberg and Brian were living in someone else's house is because they couldn't afford to pay for their own based on what they were making in the NWSL league. So that's why they were doing that. I'm sure he has a wonderful home, <laughs> but that's not the point. <laughs> right. The point no, is that's they the point I was making. Their rent, <laughs> their rent and their electric bills themselves. And so they were doing that to save income. Absolutely. Well, depending on what the EEOC ruling is, there could be uh, you know, back pay involved. I think the issue here is that there should have been in the CBA that if you save a penalty kick to win the World Cup. That's got to be worth at least a billion dollars. Or or a nice or a nice room in Jeff Van Gundy's home. <laughs> One or the other. You get incentivized with different rooms. You could move up to the master bedroom in the Jeff Van Gundy household. <laughs> well, Brian, I tell you what, I, I, I am proud I am proud of, of what that penalty save did mean and and do for the sport of soccer in this in this country and in the world. So that's that's I'm all set with that. But thank you though. I appreciate you guys. <laughs> Well, Brianna, thank you so much for uh, for joining us, and uh, we will certainly be following this uh, story in the months to come. It could take a long time to figure out what uh, the ruling is, but we'll be following it. Great. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the Golden State Warriors ownership. But first, a word about our sponsor. So I'm a New York Mets fan. I like to watch the New York Mets games, even when they're painful to watch as on Sunday night. And there's a service called MLB.tv that allows you to watch every out-of-market game. It's been around for years. It's awesome. I've subscribed many a time, usually when the Mets are good, but sometimes not. And only T-Mobile customers can get a free year-long MLB.tv premium subscription. That's $109.99 value for free. Um, And if you hurry and sign up by April 10th, You can catch any out-of-market game all season long. That's 2,430 games and over 7,000 hours of baseball that will never touch your data plan this season. That's thanks to Binge On, which is only from T-Mobile. You can stream your favorite team's games without using any of your precious data. T-Mobile has you covered, unlike those other guys. So get your free MLB.tv premium subscription. You have to do it by April 10th. And catch every moment all season long. Switch to the Uncarrier today. If you're already a T-Mobile customer, you can sign up at T-Mobile.com slash MLB. Sign up for MLB.tv while on T-Mobile's network. New MLB.tv premium subscribers only. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Visit MLB.tv for details. Ben John available to T-Mobile customers with qualifying plan. Detectable video typically streams at DVD quality. Video from participating services doesn't count against full-speed data on our U.S. network. Third-party subscription charges may apply. The Warriors beat the Blazers 136-111 to on Sunday night, recovering quickly from their first home loss of the season and moving to 69-8. and Golden State needs to win four of its last five games to finish with 73 wins and top the 96 Chicago Bulls all-time record, of a 72-win regular season. Steph Curry and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson and coaches Steve Kerr and Luke Walton and general manager Bob Myers have gotten the credit for playing and coaching and interim coaching and building this team. But in a story in the New York Times Magazine, Bruce Schoenfeld writes that the Warriors' owners, most of whom come from Silicon Valley, 
believe their management style deserves some of the credit for the team's greatness. There is definitely correlation here. Before venture capitalist Joe Lacob and his investors bought the team for $450 million in 2010, the Warriors had reached the playoffs once in 16 years. The question of causation is more debatable. After all, the team already had Steph Curry by the time Lacob took over, which is better than having, for example, Anton Jameson, Larry Hughes, Mookie Blaylock, Mark Jackson, the center, not the guard, Bob Sura, and Vontigo Cummings, to name the top six scores mm. from the 17-win 2001 Golden State Warriors. Joining us now to discuss his piece in the Times Magazine, and probably not Vontigo Cummings, is Bruce Schoenfeld. Hey, Bruce. Hey. Th- hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I will say I'm a big Mookie Blaylock fan, so, so watch out there. You and Pearl Jam. <laughs> So give us the best case for why the owners have actually had an effect on the Warriors and are a substantial reason behind this uh, franchise's turnaround. Well, yeah, the context is always that you need things to go your way. So if you don't have Steph Curry or a player of that magnitude, somehow you find a way to get him. If you do have him, he blossoms in in an unpredictable way. He becomes this player. So without that, this doesn't happen. But it should be noted that there are plenty of superstars around the league that have not won. Just having a Steph Curry, a Kevin Durant, uh, a LeBron James, if you're Cleveland, doesn't guarantee anything. And what Lacob, when he makes his case, and it really does, I think, make a lot of sense, he's created an atmosphere that is set up to receive good fortune. And if good fortune does come, which it did in this case, the structure that he has put into place uh, serves to help maximize it. I can see where the implementation of what the Warriors have implemented, a sort of Silicon Valley model, you know, tear down the walls in the offices, give people creative freedom to disagree and promote ideas no matter how low on the, on the, on the, on the pecking order they might be. That's going to lead to certainly and an overhauling of the business principles, the arena operations, the food the amenities for fans. But a lot of teams have done that, right? I I don't think it's any secret in pro sports that you can hire a novice general manager or a novice manager and succeed, or that teams can be owned by hedge fund managers or Silicon Valley executives. Lakeup seems to be taking, I mean, my takeaway from your piece was that there's a lot of ego involved here as there is with most owners. And that when things go well, some owners like to take credit for having architected, to use Lakob's word, the success. I finished reading it a little bit dubious about the on-court effect of changing the, the organization the way they did. Yeah, and, and it's uh, certainly there's an element of skepticism, not because of Lakob claiming success or not, but because it's unclear how much effect an owner of any kind can have on on-court success. Jerry West makes the point that the way for an owner to be successful, to help his team be successful on the court, is to not mess it up. And I do think that Lacob comes from a culture in which he was involved in an awful lot of companies at once, and he learned how to exert a subtle influence on them without necessarily having to be the guy riding the horse, so to speak. And most sports teams have always been have been run in very autocratic fashion. Even some of the hedge fund guys uh, in the past, like uh, Wick Grosbeck of the Celtics, came from that culture, but runs his team the way people typically run their team, which is to say, 
look, this is my toy. This is my business. I bought it. I'm going to do things my way. Uh, Lacob uh, is comfortable. Uh, you, you know, you talk about his ego in the piece, and, and he does have ego in the sense of, yes, we tried this and it worked, and look how much we knew. But he doesn't appear to have a lot of ego in the everyday running of the team. And that is a substantial point of difference from the vast majority of owners. Now, whether that creates a connection with on-court success or not is still debatable. But I do think if you've hired the right people and your predilection is to listen to them, you increase the odds of success. And, and in this case, you know, one player personnel decision after another, people talk about they almost traded Clay Thompson. Uh, they almost, they didn't want to trade Monte Ellis. There's, you know, a, a series of decisions. Well, it turns out they, in the end, came as a group to these decisions and they did the right thing, as it turned out. And, uh, you know, maybe that's no accident. A couple things. One, the argument, oh, is it the architect or the great stars? Was Reinsdorf a genius or did he have Jordan? That's true with Jordan. I think that argument obtains less with the Golden State Warriors than any other great team because their greatness is not based on it, – it's based on players who we know are great but not who we thought were great coming in and, in fact, might not have been great were it not for the very system that the Warriors implemented. So you can't say, oh, anyone could win with Draymond Green. Really? Why would everyone pass on him uh, at least once in the NBA? draft so that's not that's a bad argument with the warriors i think so that would tend to say that uh the, there's something to do with ownership but you know the other thing is that in other sports where you try to to borrow the phrase get the extra two percent like the tampa bay rays did it doesn't always work you know in baseball billy beans shit doesn't work in the playoffs in uh in the nfl of course there are only 16 games but basketball is the has the least variance so if you're gonna have a good team that should win and you're expected you know pythagorean or whatever win rate ratio tells you you're supposed to win. In basketball, you usually do win. So what I'm saying is that for all the newfangled owners who are taking over the other sports, the NBA, although it has a lot of tech guys and forward-looking guys, it would be the sport, it seems to me, that would embrace a genius or a forward-looking owner and ownership style more than any of the other sports. Yeah, I think I think uh, the easy metric there is that in basketball and in football, your best teams win 90% of their games. So there's a, a, a predictability. If you're, if you're going to go, uh, you know, win 68, 70 games or, or 65 games in a year, if you're going to go 14 and 2, 15 and 1 in the NFL, which I would group there with, with basketball, the playoffs are going to play out pretty much according to form. If you have a baseball team and you're a, you know, you're a division champion and with a 58% uh, winning percentage and you're playing someone else who's 62, even the best teams are going to lose more than two thirds of the time. So you can do all the right things and create this, you know, dynastic sort of team and lose in the first round. And it's not really a surprise. Uh, you know, what you're trying to do is change the odds in your favor, which is why when I found out that it turned out Lacob was a blackjack player and in fact, a card counter, it all kind of came into focus. He's doing the exact same thing with basketball. He's not trying to win every time. He's trying to go from 50 percent chance to a 58 62 percent chance and hope that things fall into place bruce you already mentioned wick grosbeck the owner of the celtics um, you also write in the piece that the pistons bucks sixers hawks kings and grizzlies are all either owned by silicon valley engineers venture capitalists private equity investors or hedge funders you add the warriors to that and you didn't even mention the mavericks who are owned by mark cuban an internet billionaire so if we put aside the whole thing about, you know, what effect are these owners having, 
just as an observation, like there's a new kind of class of rich dude who is buying these teams who are owning these teams. And so what as a group do you think what effect are they having on the NBA? Well, first of all, there's a new kind of class of rich dude in America, right? I mean, the way you used to get rich was you'd start a company and you'd do one thing, you did it really well, and you know you became a magnate of cardboard boxes or whatever it is. Uh, and now uh, the richest people in America are people that are much more uh, nimble in their investments and their fingers in a lot of pies. Uh, this is happening at a time in which professional sports is kind of segueing from being the toy department, which it was when people of Stefan and my generation started, to being in some cases the most successful uh, and one of the more valuable businesses in a market, you know, in, in the case of, let's say, the Buffalo Bills. So, you know, it's not surprising that the skill set needed to run these things, these, these entities in the 21st century is different than it was when, you know, basically the Boston Bruins would open the doors every year and say, here we are, we're ready to play. There was no marketing. There was no, it was just, okay, it's the first game of the year. Today, these are multinational companies in the sense that they have a fan base around the world. And the people, this new caliber of super millionaire, billionaire uh, is more suited to run them than the old kind of autocratic single business guy. But having said that, there's a bell curve in this as in anything else. Some of them are better at it than others. And, I, and, and Joe Lacob is not just a Silicon Valley guy, not just a venture capitalist. He's particularly good at this. He's got a particularly good personality and personal skill set that lends itself to this and a lifelong passion for this. I'm not sure that's going to be so easily replicated. And especially in markets like Milwaukee, where you have a venture capital guy and a hedge fund guy who live in New York, who are running a team in Milwaukee kind of, you know, by phone and expect to duplicate these results, I, you know, that's, that's going to be tough. I think open-mindedness toward how you run a business ends up being the common denominator for the franchises that have succeeded and done things differently. Um, I thought one of the most revealing quotes in the piece was from Sean Livingston, the guard for the Warriors, um, you were talking about how Steve Kerr last year during the playoffs when they were losing uh, two games to one to Cleveland took the advice of the guy that puts together the highlight tapes uh, after the games to put uh, Andre Iguodala on LeBron James. And Livingston said, I've never seen anything like that. This wasn't even an assistant coach. It was a video coordinator. And Steve Kerr listened to him and he did it. All the bridges are open here. There's an open forum of ideas. And from being around teams, I think one thing that is true is that when you put into place a system where players feel respected and they feel like they can be listened to rather than that they are just commodities who are shuffled in and out of a lineup and on and off of a roster, they want to play better. Um, you know, we think of these guys as contracted workers who are incentivized to always do their best. Um, but when they see an organization that respects them, that does have an influence. You know, there, there's this comes right. There's a clash of the of this these beliefs right now uh, playing out across professional sports uh, between the analytic oriented people who say that things like the feel of a clubhouse are meaningless, and the more old fashioned we're all in this together over the course of X months. And there is an impact on, uh, you know, if you want to, if you, if you show up happy at the office, you'll do better at the office kind of thing. I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. There's certainly two schools of thought. I have a, a, a 15 year old son who plays on, plays elite baseball. And I know that 
when the composition of his dugout is better, the, the team does better. But does that carry over with these professional athletes? I, I don't know if it does or it doesn't. But I do think that when there is a, a system of open communication uh, as opposed to one guy really coming up with all the answers, you're more likely to have good ideas percolate upward. And if you have a guy like Lacob who listens and really is not wedded to his own ideas, that openness percolates downward. And so if you're a believer that having good ideas be in the air is going to be a contributor to a team success, then you like this way of doing things. If you think rather that you get one really smart guy and let him go with his instinct, let him go with his feel, the old autocratic way of doing things, then you're going to think this is a, you know, a, a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, of, of bullshit. But yeah, I'm not sure there's a, there's a proven answer to that. I will note that until last season, every team in every major sport that won a championship did it the old way. Uh, so there's you know, quite a track record there that can't be ignored, right? Well, I would say in my gut, uh, I think you're right. Being forward-looking as an owner certainly helps. Yet if you had the uh, scatter graph of the NBA teams and you categorize them by old-school owner, new-school owner, sure, you got the Warriors up there with a new owner, but who else is right there with the Warriors? The Spurs, which are owned by a guy who made his money in Caterpillar, earth movers, dump trucks, nothing more old school than that. And, you know, some of these tech billionaires uh, own the Sacramento Kings, so they're not doing so well. Then again, you have James Dolan with his uh, old school way of thinking, not getting out of his old way with the Knicks. Or Well, to interrupt briefly, Mike, I mean, like the Kings, that's like kind of a caricature of Silicon Valley thinking, yeah. right? Like with all these like innovative ideas that are just terrible. No, but, yes. no, and but, then, but, let, but let's, let's be clear about that. Vivek Ranadive was a minority owner with the Warriors who was not comfortable working in that way. And Lacob said to him, look, this isn't working out. Uh, why don't you sell your share in the Warriors and I'll help get you. The Kings need an owner up the road. You have the money. You want to run your own show autocratically. I can help facilitate that if you if you know if you get out from under my hair. So Vivek is a you know is an old uh, uh, an old wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, you know he's he's a an autocratic guy doing it the old way who happens to come from Silicon Valley. So so I know that 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 at least Lakeup would say wait don't don't put him in my camp. <laughs> Until what they uh, make the conference semis, then then he'll be a tech guy. Oh, but my point is this: that it seems like I can't I can't prove right now. I I suspect I can't prove a correlation between mindset of ownership and success on the court. There are many counterexamples. There are examples. I do think you do see it um, showing up in the fact that uh, something approaching a majority of the league is young and forward thinking, or I don't know, young but techy. And the NBA is certainly much more forward thinking on a whole ton of issues than these other old school leagues. But it seems to me the most important thing here is Jerry West, who is a genius, but an old school guy. And can you point to a decision where it's this the new way of thinking as opposed to Jerry West saying, no, sign this guy that helped the Warriors out? Uh, let's also take like hiring hiring of Steve Kerr. That, as per your reporting, he and Lacob were golfing buddies. That's old boy network, old school stuff. I agree with everything you're saying, but Jerry West also had a, a you know an interregnum in the wilderness with the Grizzlies in between the Lakers and the and the Warriors. He wasn't just a consultant; he ran the show with almost dictatorial powers and an owner who, unlike Jerry Buss, was just thrilled to be there and in the company of Jerry West. Said Jerry, you do anything you want, and he did not have success there. 
Uh, he built a pretty good team, but not a team that won. So it's not just Jerry West. And second, I do think that though Lakeham and Kerr were golfing buddies, the fact that Lakeham hired a general manager and two coaches who had never done it before, uh, a very Silicon Valley thing to do. You know, Silicon Valley, you're creating a, uh, in many cases, the companies that a venture capitalist backs, they're in categories that don't even exist yet. You know, there is no track record. You can't have a track record if you're inventing an entirely new way of doing things. So you learn to hire people based on your assessment of their nimbleness, their acuity, their intelligence, their work ethic. You pick them for reasons other than what have they done before. And Lakeup interviewed, before hiring Bob Myers, he interviewed people for six months. And all of them came in and said, here's how I do it. Here's how I did it in Detroit. Here's how I did it in Phoenix. Here's how I did it in these other places. And Lakeup said, gee, I, you know, I don't want you to be wedded to the way you did it. I have my ideas on how this should be run. And I want somebody who is uh, so open-minded as to say, well, I, you know, look, this is, this is all new to me. Let's figure it out. And th- you may think that's a crazy thing to do, or you may think that's a brilliant thing to do, but it is undeniably a different thing to do. And maybe if they didn't have Steph Curry, we would not be talking about him. <laughs> uh, and that's, and, and, yeah. And maybe if Steph Curry hadn't become Steph Curry, right? Well, I'm going to dictatorially, autocratically decide that it is time to uh, say that you should read uh, Bruce Schoenfeld's piece in the New York Times Magazine on the Golden State Warriors and their owners. Uh, Bruce Schoenfeld, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, you guys. Major League Baseball's opening day moved to opening night a few years ago with the season opener on Sunday evening. This year, it was opening night day or something. I saw that the... Pirates and Cardinals were playing on Sunday afternoon and got very confused. Like maybe it was a very late spring training game. But no, this was opening night day. Yeah. There were three games, including the Mets losing by one to the Royals in heartbreaking fashion. Baseball. It's like you never left. That was like night. That was the night. That was opening night night. Night night. There were just two home runs on opening night day slash night night because sports does not like to cooperate. But we remain unpersuaded by a single data point, and we'll stick to our plan. In a story at 538 last week, Rob Arthur and Ben Lindbergh wrote about a baseball mystery. The home run is back, and no one knows why. As Arthur and Lindbergh explain, runs per team per game rose from 4.07 to 4.25 last year, which is only the second time that scoring has increased in Major League Baseball in the last 10 years. It was the biggest increase during that 10-year period. In particular, offense uh, surged in August, September, and October, and it was almost entirely because of uh, home runs. Home run rates is a percentage of contact that is the rate of home runs on at-bats that did not end in strikeouts, um, was higher last September and October than in any time since 2004, and Arthur and Lenberg report that home run rates and scoring were up this spring training, too, so it may not just be a short-term blip. So... If you want to play along here, why don't you think about what could have caused this to happen? You can pause the show. You can adopt a thinking pose. You can kind of look at your dog as you're on the walk. You mm-hmm. can kind of ponder. Scratch your chin. Ponder with the Pomeranian. Rub your chin. Um, okay. So while you're doing that, the lead of the 538 story is Rob Manfred on his first day as MLB commissioner in January 2015 saying he wanted to inject additional offense in the game. Inject. 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 So now Manfred and MLB are saying they haven't done anything. There was no injection. They wanted to inject it in the ass of the game. (laughs) They did not baste 
the game in any way. And so this is a statistically significant increase in scoring that just happened on its own, which you could say is either a sign that forbearance, that non-injection paid off for baseball, or maybe they did do something and they're not saying what. Uh, so Mike Pesca, over to you. What do you think is going on here? Well, I, when reading the story, I had my own theory right away, and they weren't one of the theories that was explored. And I didn't think about weather. They explored weather pretty well. What do you think of the mm-hmm. weather answer? So yeah, let me stop and just say that Ben uh, Lindbergh, who we've had on the show before, love that guy, and Rob Arthur, went into just an insane amount of detail on all of these different theories. And it just goes to show like the amazing things you can do with baseball research these days. I mean, they they looked into the weather. They were like, a one degree increase would change runs by 0.6%. Anyway, continue, Mike. Okay. My theory was the embrace of the truth, what is a three true outcome hitter, walk, home run, strikeout. Just letting Chris Carter go up there and strike out 18,000 times, but he'll hit a bunch of home runs. Or Valbuena, who's home run, like he had two hits that weren't home runs all of last year. These guys, the front offices, uh, the Astros, chief among them, who said, if you hit home runs, you could basically do anything else and we'll keep you on the team, although they trade Chris Carter. And I think it's that. I think it's not caring about strikeouts. I think it's a certain type of hitter. And I think it's valuing the home run in a way that was never not valued, but the idea of a spray hitter and the idea of someone who works all fields and the idea of someone who doesn't strike out, those ideas have become less and less embraced. And hey, hit a home run, that guy's become more embraced. But why, but why though? Why would exit velocity of batted balls jump up in August as opposed to all year long? Why would home runs go up 30% over projections from midseason on? Um, I'm not so sure it's roster composition. Well, but but that theory, and so, you know, they did find that it was a certain time of the year that uh, the home runs went out of the park. That says that we don't really have an uptick in home runs. We have an uptick in home runs in the last part of the season. I mean, I think that there's probably a lot of variance to that. I don't know. They say in the beginning of the year, pitchers are ahead of hitters. I'm sorry to argue, you know, a they say that type argument. But I think there could be a few things. I, I do think that the type of hitter who's out there, you know, slugging for the fences from his heels hitter has a lot to do with it. I don't know why that guy only shows up in August. Maybe the other pit, maybe the pitchers get bad in August. <laughs> well, what you're ta- what you're describing about the three true outcomes, I mean, that's like a Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa. But those guys were on era, those guys were on steroids in the game. <laughs> yeah, they were in they were uh, on steroids. But that that type of hitter was embraced by the Oakland A's and Moneyball, and it was you know even though they were on steroids, it wasn't the the type of hitter that they were didn't change. It was just the result of you know bat hitting ball was changed because they were so muscular but you know the jason giambi and all these other other guys that were on the a's they weren't doing anything but homering striking out and and walking and so the the three theories that they went through in the piece where we already talked about the weather mm-hmm. unusually warm weather which decreases air density and helps batted balls carry then the other two theories which they found there was actually more of an effect than the weather part an unprecedented influx of powerful rookie hitters we talked about that Last year, the guys like Chris Bryant with Correa of the Astros, with Lindor of the Indians, that this was just kind of a once in a lifetime. Like once ever, this is the best rookie class ever if you look through baseball history. And those guys were kind of disproportionately hitting home runs in the second half of the year. But that still only explained, I think, a third of it. 
then the the last part was decline in pitching quality stemming from good pitchers being shut down as pennant races resolved themselves early. And that also had kind of a small effect. But that's something I think about, too. Like, we look at ev- in basketball or any sport, we look at every point that scored um, or every touchdown that scored as being kind of equivalent when you look at the cumulative box score at the end of the year. But if you look at it game by game, there are certain, if you're the Sixers or if you're the Pelicans now or if you're the Nets, there are certain games where one team just isn't trying and so you kind of have to discount the statistics from those games a little bit, or you have to look at them a little bit askance. And those games happen disproportionately at the end of the year. So it makes sense that there would be worse pitchers or rookie pitchers or unproven pitchers that are going out in August and September. But again, why last year as opposed to other years? Um, I wonder if you know the one thing that isn't touched on in the piece is drugs. I mean, is there any... Thing happening in the way that baseball players, assuming that the consumption of performance-enhancing drugs has declined or been close to eliminated. You know, historically, baseball players would talk about needing amphetamines to get through the season. They play a lot of games. They travel a shitload. They get tired as the season progresses. You're an amphetamine guy, not an amphetamine guy? I'm an amphetamine guy. Yeah. Are you <laughs> okay. an amphetamine guy? I'm big amph- I'm an amphetamine machine. So have teams and players found ways to stay healthier effectively? Is there better roster management? Are athletes, players doing anything differently to endure the long season? That yeah, that's a good idea before. because any theory that we have to come up with is why would it go up in the second half of the season right. and being able to stay healthier. Minimize fatigue. Right. But that wait, isn't that like saying, why did this guy hit 300 when he's a lifetime 280 hitter? And then you go through his stats and you found that it was two hot streaks. And so you don't talk about if he became a better hitter, you only concentrate on the time that he had his hot streaks. I mean, a lot of times there are general trends that are localized in one place. I think maybe it's a uh, red herring to make this answer why did it happen at this point in the season versus why did it happen i mean it happened it happened to be localized in that point in the season who knows if the home run trend won't happen again this year and be more spread out or happen in the beginning of the season well is it just is it possible that this is one of two other things which is after several years of pitcher dominance we are seeing a natural cyclical return to hitters having some advantage i mean that's certainly conceivable um, is there something about the way that pitching staffs have been managed for the last decade that hitters are starting to figure out and gaining an advantage from? Well, or could this just be random? Could this just be, it's not that huge a sample size. I mean, it's not that enormous a jump in, it's stati- statistically significant, but it's not like, you know, two runs per game. Right. So to make that point a little bit clearer, the run scored per game last year was 4.25, which was a big jump. I mean, 0.18 runs per game might not sound like that much, but like in the context of like baseball, that's a, a big jump. But back in 2000, like at the height of the steroid era, it was 5.14 runs per game. So even with this rise, we're still like almost a run less than we were. And I think you can tell that just by feel, by watching the game, that it that hitters are still not kind of dominating the game in the way that they were. But I guess two things jumped out to me with this article. Number one, as I kind of already said, there are just so many different variables here. And I think rather than come to any conclusion, I thought it was just interesting to talk about this. 
just because of all the different research avenues you can go down, how difficult it is to disaggregate everything when you're talking about, you know, pitchers versus hitters versus, you know, weather and all the different possibilities here. So I just thought that was interesting. The other thing which they did bring up, which I want to kind of bracket and talk about separately, is the balls mm. and the rumor, constant rumors that the balls are juiced. And Ben Lindbergh and Rob Arthur actually sent baseballs to a laboratory to have them tested. And they found that the balls in 2015 were not any different than the balls in 2014. But just having watched baseball and paid attention to it for 30 years, this comes up constantly, this idea that the balls are juiced. And in the NCA, they actually lowered the seams on the baseball to get them to travel further because they were having a decline in home runs. Three years ago in Japan, the commissioner of baseball resigned when it was revealed that the NPB was secretly introducing a livelier ball. And so it's definitely not beyond the realm of possibility that the ball is juiced. There's no proof that it is. But if, in fact, a new ball was introduced around the All-Star break, that would perhaps explain something. So, Mike, what do you think about the commissioner's impulse going into 2015, the idea that there needed to be more offense injected into the butt of the game? Like, was it correct that it had become too pitcher-centric? And was it actually more pleasing to see more home runs? And in the postseason, the runs per game even, like, went up higher. It was, like, at 4.6. Like, is that a better quality of baseball? Yeah. Well, first of all, it wasn't offense that was injected in the butt. It was a uh, it was a vitamin, only a vitamin. I swear to God. Um, you know, when the when home runs were flying out of the park and during the steroid era, it now seems tainted and horrible, but it was fun. It was not. It, it turned out to have been horrible because it was uh, all based on lies, deception, cheating. But it was fun. It was great to go to the park and maybe it had gotten Is anything little... that's fun. Really horrible. Yeah, that's true. It uh, it. It. <laughs> It, had, it was it was captivating, and maybe it got too far. So, you know, he's trying to be like um, the Fed chairman, uh, increasing the water in the bathtub, a little hot, a little cold, trying to set interest rates right. And it is weird that the commissioner sees himself as the person who actually can do it rather than letting this 140-year-old sport go out and figure it out for itself. But you could raise the mound. You could lower the mound. You could raise the stripes. You could raise the stitches. You could lower the stitches. It's good to you know. You could ban shifts. Right. It's good if the commissioner knows you're raising or lowering the sh uh, stitches. I hope they don't ban shifts. And, you know, uh, so much of, maybe so much of uh, pitching was getting ahead of hitting for a number of reasons. And it seems like a lot of the advanced metrics were how to erase offense as opposed to how to generate offense. I mean, once the advanced metrics were like, all right, don't sacrifice and don't oversteal and don't give away way outs was there a lot of great hitting advanced metrics you know was it like when you go up to the plate do this because of advanced metrics it seems to me that everything we learned was more like pitchers uh, catchers should frame it like this and the defense should shift like that and and pitchers should throw here or there so you know the smarts were getting ahead of the bats so i guess that's why swing with more of an uppercut so it's a home run right but that <laughs> that sort of thing like trajectory of swing i've never seen an advanced metric on that maybe because we have pitch FX, not bat FX. So yeah, I don't think a little offense, if it's honestly come by, is bad at all. Now it is time for after balls. And I mentioned Vontigo Cummings earlier. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is one of those times in the year where I just feel like going to someone's Wikipedia page and reading the entire list of basketball teams that they've played for. Okay. Golden State Warriors, Philadelphia 76ers, Westchester Wildfire. That's a good team nickname. And also what nearly wiped New Rochelle off the map that one time in 1918. <laughs> but go ahead. 
Carisbo Castel Maggiore. Nice try. Then, then the Westchester Wildfire. Then Himo Farm Versac. I feel like Himo Farm always comes up in these yeah. Wikipedia lists. Fort Worth Flyers, Partizan Belgrade, Maccabee Tel Aviv, Estudiantes, Volvodina Shribidgas, Sedevita Zagreb, Ilyasiakos, Ilyasiakos, Kerainos, Sopot, <laughs> Atenienses de Manati. There, that's Vantigo Cummings' career for you. All right. Two-time Adriatic League Final Four MVP. Mike Pasca, what is your Vantigo? Well, you've inspired me. I'm going to list a bunch of teams, and then you figure out who they were. The Gulf Coast League Blue Jays, the Auburn Double Days, the Lansing Lugnuts, then some time with uh, D- the Dunedin Blue Jays, and uh, then the Major League Club, then back down, little time with the Salt River Arizona Fall League, the Salt River Rafters, the Buffalo Bison, uh, Toronto of the MLB, Buffalo up to Toronto, Buffalo. Do you know who I'm listing? A guy who played for Toronto. Ryan Goins. That's right. On this show, all the teams of both Cummings and Goings. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd like to talk about baseball. In fact, that Mets game. Let's just talk about announcers. I'll get to the Mets game. A couple weeks ago in, I think, the worst announcing uh, spasm of the NCAA tournament, it was Gonzaga against Syracuse. And Cooney on Syracuse steals the ball, and it could have been a big play. There were only a few seconds left. But from out of nowhere, a referee comes and rules that Cooney's foot was on the line. And so then we are treated to 16 different super slow-mo, super enhanced replays that seem to pretty much show that Cooney's foot was not on the line. And there was some discussion of... If the referee who made that call should have even made the call, short answer, he's not the primary ref to make the call, but often a referee will thank the non-primary ref who comes in to make a correct call. No one thanks a ref who doesn't make a correct call. But replay after replay, and at one point, the CBS announcer, now this wasn't, so this was Kevin Harlan, this was Reggie Miller, and this was Dan Bonner. And Reggie Miller was exercised about how he blew the call. But at one point, Dan Bonner says, you absolutely can review that. You can review that. And the thing is, you can't review that. They did not know you can't review that. They acted as if you could review that. They went on and on and on about what an injustice this was. And the whole reason that we had three minutes to discuss this is that the referees were looking at the clock. But at no time did the announcing crew actually explain to us because they clearly had the wrong information. They never explained to us that the referees can't look at that possession. You can only look at who it goes off on. So that was a huge failure and it got me a little upset. Now let's fast forward to every game in the NCAA tournament. My new pet peeve, and I'd like to do a supercut of this, although people tell me supercuts aren't that in vogue, but I'd love to hear the supercut of you don't need a three. There are two things (laughs) that make the NCAA or the basketball Uh, color man earn his money one is the ability to divide by three so he'll tell you how many possession game this pushes it to a two possession game he's really good at dividing by three but he's also really good with any more than 10 seconds left at telling us you don't need a three i've never watched a game where a team was trying to come down where the learned play-by-play man or indeed the color man has not intoned you know at this point you don't need a three you never need a three but guess what they're 50 percent better than twos 
No one seems to raise that. Now, the last thing I'd like to say is about Jessica Mendoza, who's good. And I really would love a, a um, she gets some guff because she's a woman on Twitter. She's the lead analyst or she and Aaron Boone are in the booth on Sunday Night Baseball. She made her uh, debut as a full-time analyst on Sunday Night Baseball. She was good. She was fine. I would really like an experiment where you dubbed out her voice and dubbed in a male a gruffy male voice and see how many people have an objection. It would definitely go down. However, she did say something rather foolish in the game. She was talking about Eric Hosmer, who bunted. They have the strategy of bunting on David Wright, who apparently now has a noodle arm. That's great. Spinal stenosis will do that to you. Hosmer hustles down the line, slides into first base. Now, someone has to say the thing about sliding into first base slows you down, but this is how Jessica Mendoza says it. I'm sure... Eric Hosmer has heard all that talk about how sliding into first base slows you down, but that's just the kind of player he is. Meaning what? <laughs> a guy who does things that are stupid, even though he's heard the talk? I don't know. Uh, she was trying to be very positive the whole time. Every time the Royals did something that the Royals do, which is to use, which is to p- slap the ball on the ground and beat out a hit, she pointed out that that wasn't an accident. That's Royals baseball. But I'm sure he's heard that sliding into first slows you down, but that's just the kind of player he is. I don't know what kind of player that is. I, apparently, it's supposed to be a compliment to me it's a player who does something stupid to slightly increase his chance of getting thrown out scrappy and dumb yeah dumb and scrappy you don't need a three here that's a great observation i also feel like that's transferable to every sport the baseball equivalent is you don't need to get it all back in one swing that's right you know what getting it all back in one swing is pretty good pretty good (laughs) i think you kind of uh, would would enjoy doing that as a baseball team um you don't need to go for two here but two is more than one (laughs) all right uh stefan what did your Von go? Well, it was big news, and rightly so, a few weeks ago when a computer programmed at Google beat a top expert player in the ancient Chinese game of Go. Go was perceived to be the last frontier in strategic AI gaming. In the 1990s, there was a $5 million prize for a program that could beat a top human. It went unclaimed. So AlphaGo's triumph over South Korean master Lee Seedol in Seoul last month was viewed as the final surrender to our computer overlords. But the old bundle of bits still can't take down the best humans in at least one other endeavor, crossword puzzles. In Stanford, Connecticut, over the weekend, a software program known as Dr. Phil, F-I-L-L, which is crammed with a gigabyte of data from the internet, placed a mere 41st out of 576 competitors in the annual American Crossword Puzzle Tournament. It should be noted, however, that Dr. Phil is only getting better It had placed 127th in the tournament back in 2012, and it's moved up every year. But Dr. Phil wasn't the big story at the tournament run by New York Times and NPR puzzle guy Will Shorts. Instead, it was the dethroning of solving legend Dan Fair, who had won the ACPT six years in a row. Over the weekend, Fair was in first place after the main round of seven puzzles, The standings are based on speed and accuracy. If you finished all seven puzzles correctly in the allotted time, you would have racked up around 8,000 points. Fair amassed 12,035, 75 more than the guys in second and third, Howard Barkin and David Plotkin. But it wasn't enough. The final puzzle was titled The Lowdown and Across. It was a 15 by 15 grid, but with just 22 black squares. So one of those really hard Saturday New York Times puzzles. The three finalists were on a raised platform before the audience of those who were eliminated. Um, The puzzles were on easels, and they filled them in with markers. They wore noise-canceling headphones. 
so they couldn't hear the audience and the color commentators, Peter Sagal of NPR and puzzler Greg Pliska. Here's what things sounded like near the end. That is an impossible clue. Oh, it's a Mus- a muscovite schist. Is a sh- is muscovite a kind of schist? Apparently. Right. <laughs> but, Dan is close. How close are we? So close. What you're not seeing is Howard Barkin raise his arm in triumph, pump downward, and throw his headphones to the ground in exultation. Barkin had finished third in 2014 and 2015, but defeating Fair in the finals was a coup. Barkin finished the puzzle in under eight minutes, compared to around two minutes for the easiest puzzles in the event, and he soaked up the applause until Fair finished about a minute later. I emailed with Barkin on Monday morning. He's a software developer and tester in New Jersey. He said he made the finals thanks to a personal record-setting solve of the seventh-round puzzle, a Sunday-sized 21 by 21, which he completed in under six minutes, which he'd never done before. He said he wasn't feeling any pressure in the final because facing Fair, I already assumed I was solving for second place. Barkin said the key was luck. He started the puzzle in what turned out to be the hardest section, the lower right quadrant with 27 across, safety feature of some scissors. Barkin got the answer, rounded tip. But he said the other finalists tried what he called the equally reasonable round edges. The overlapping ED was tricky. In the same area, he said he needed a minute to fill in Paven for 42 down. Corey, who won golf's 1995 U.S. Open. Josh, Mike, we would have gotten that instantly, along with Potale, P-O-T-A-L-E, for 42 across, brewery residue used for animal food. After that, Barkin said, the rest just flowed, and I was shocked to be the first to finish. Will Short sent me the eight puzzles from the tournament. I stopped, watched myself for the first two. I completed puzzle one perfectly in 13 minutes and 26 seconds, under the 15-minute allotment. The top solvers did it in under three minutes. I did the second one in about 20 minutes well below the 25-minute allotment. Then I, then the puzzles got harder, and I went to sleep. Uh, I would have been in around 400th place after the first two rounds. Congratulations. Thank you for finishing 438th. Josh, what's your Fontigo Cummings? Last week on ESPN.com, John Gassaway ranked all 77 men's basketball NCAA tournament champions from best to worst. Number one was the 72 UCLA Bruins, Bill Walton, 30-0, only two games decided by single digits. The very bottom, team number 77, were the 1944 Utah Utes. Gassaway's capsule description of the 21-4 and four team. Coach Vidal Peterson's team featured Arnie Farron, and the Utes received an NCAA bid only after an auto accident injured enough members of the Arkansas team to force the Razorbacks to decline their invitation. If you think there is probably more to that story, then welcome to this afterball. <laughs> On March... And the entire concept of afterballs. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the afterball. On March 20th, 1944, the UPI reported that Arkansas coach Gene Lambert had made the decision to pull his team from the NCAA tournament after an auto accident, which an assistant coach was killed and two players were injured. The Arkansas team was driving back from Camp Chaffee, Arkansas, an army base where they were playing an exhibition game to get ready for the NCAA tournament. Remember, this is... 1944, during World War II, the coach, uh, the assistant coach, Everett Norris, and players Ben Jones and Dino Nichols had gotten out of their station wagon to fix a flat tire when they were struck by an oncoming vehicle. The 22-year-old Jones suffered two broken legs. The 24-year-old Nichols broke one leg. In a column in the Brian Daily Eagle from Brian, Texas, Mitt Maloney, 1944 sports columnist, 
wrote that Nichols is the boy who was the spark plug for the Porkers this cage season. Fans here will remember his colorful play, his sensational overhand shots, and the vigorous floor work he displayed. Maloney concluded by saying, The tournament is a small part considered alongside of smashed legs, the very part of the body that made these two such splendid basketeers as they ran, leaped, twisted, and turned to lead their team to a cage championship. Mid Maloney. Uh, it got worse for Dino Nichols. A few days after the accident, he had to get his leg amputated above the knee after gangrene had started to set in. His teammates gave blood for transfusions. Meanwhile, Utah was in New York for the NIT. The Utes lost three games in the regular season. I think you will probably not be able to guess who they lost to. Fort Warren, Salt Lake AB, and Dow Chemical. In the NIT... They lost early to Kentucky, freeing them up to take the spot Arkansas vacated in the NCAA tournament. Utah made it to the Elite Eight. Uh, that was because there were only eight teams in the NCAA tournament. They beat Missouri <laughs> so by elite. 10. And... <laughs> the invited eight. <laughs> the eight. Just the eight. <laughs> they beat Missouri by 10, Iowa State by nine, and then they beat Dartmouth 42-40 to 40 in the title game behind the play of Arnie Farron, who is still alive, incidentally, at age 90. Nichols and Jones, the Arkansas players who were injured in the accident, were awarded wristwatches by the NCAA. So don't say the NCAA never did anything no. good for players. <laughs> um, there were ones similar to those given members of the national championship team. So that was nice. Uh, Dino Nichols wrote a book called Sports Reports. He became a sportscaster. He was a coach. He ran for political office. He died in 1990. And as Josh Farron, the grandson of Utah star Arnie Farron, reported in a 2012 story in the Deseret News, the Arkansas player never got over the injustice of that tragic night. Here's an excerpt from Farron's book on the Utah team called Blitz Kids, uh, where he also writes a little bit about the Arkansas guys. Dino's wife, Virginia, stayed at his bedside most of the time he was in the hospital. She could sense Dino was dying inside. He initially canceled all his plans for the future and tried drowning himself in alcohol. He eventually found some success but felt cheated and saw the accident as the cause of all the unhappiness in his life. The last time Virginia saw Dino was a few months before he died. She was quoted in the Charlotte Observer as saying, he was in a wheelchair. There were big circles under his eyes. He looked like a shrunken old man. He wound up in the hospital and refused to eat. They tried to feed him intravenously, but he'd yank the needles out. I believe he wanted to die. So that's extremely depressing. And it goes to show you that in a little capsule in ESPN describing the worst team that ever won the NCAA championship, there's an even sadder story behind the team that didn't even go, get to go to the NCAA championship because of a car accident. Condolences, 1944, Arkansas Razorbacks. But congratulations to Dartmouth for making the finals. Good job, Dartmouth. You are so in the bag for the Ivy League. It's unbelievable. But I stand for Salt Lake AB <laughs> and Dow Chemical. Dow Chemical. <laughs> you know, I was once, uh, I had something in common with someone in the story. He was the spark boy for the porkers. I was the pork boy for the sparkers. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. And buy tickets to our live show at slate.com slash live. That's April 25th, Monday in Washington, D.C. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. 
and Andy Bowers is the Chief Content Officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.